today on Ag News Daily. For me, just being able to see a different place, a different culture, different people, and getting to have those Welcome to the Friday edition, March 24th, 2023. Podcast here bringing you the latest headlines and a great conversation today. Delaney, are you fired up? Super fired up, Tanner, except there's not a lot of news today. So I guess it'll be a short podcast conversation for our listeners. Hey, that's the best type of Friday episode is get straight to the fun part of it. Blow right by the news and headlines. Uh, unfortunately, looks like we're going to have to pay a little bit more attention to the products that get shipped in Minnesota, especially as related to seed that has been treated. Minnesota's uh, legislators have to regulate neonic seed treatments, especially in the form of product that is sent to ethanol plants. This is in regards to the mead, uh, the ethanol plant outside of mead in Nebraska, which was shut down by state regulators in 2021 and is still undergoing a cleanup process for seed treated with neonicotinoids that came through in distiller's grain and wet cake as a byproduct. So this was a pesticide seeded tree I assume was leftover inventory from a seed company that was sent to an ethanol plant to turn into cash grain. Of course, when that was processed, uh, that created a uh, byproduct that was not suitable to be disposed, whether spread onto fields or included into their waste plant, uh, waste management plan. So the bill that was introduced in Minnesota by the commissioners of agriculture would require a caution statement on all corn and soybean seeds treated with chemicals. Planting seed that is treated with this pesticide may negatively impact pollinator health as well as caution when handling and planting the seed. Also, the state would provide a $275,000 fund in Minnesota for a pollution control agency that would continue to monitor the disposal of treated seed if not planted. So some more legislative action to be moved forward, but that bill was proposed yesterday to hopefully avoid an issue that happened at the ethanol plant for future ethanol plants down the road. Well, Tanner, a quick update here on South American weather as we're continuing to chug right along here into the Safrina second season corn planting. That's continuing to be largely delayed for Brazil. The states specifically of Parna and Mato Grosso do Sul are significantly behind while planting in Mato Grosso finished close to normal time this year. Uh, the significant portion of that crop was planted still later than normal, especially when compared to last year, but it is at least all fully in the ground. Analysts are suggesting that corn production is going to need to see sustained rainfall for the rest of the wet season, and anything less than that might be concerning to the Safrina production season. We also saw coming out of Buenos Aires, Grain Exchange, that they kept their Argentine soybean crop and corn crop estimates the same at 25 million metric tons and 36 million metric tons, respectively, noting that recent rains stabilized the crop for now, but long term, they're still concerned about severely prolonged drought. So the last thing I'll report here is the exchange rated the Argentine soybean crop 2% good to excellent, unchanged from the previous week. 25% fair, which is up two percentage points, and 73% poor to very poor tanner so all in all the crop is still not looking very favorable there for argentina but we haven't seen any recent reductions once again 
Yeah, also something that's not looking extremely favorable is the drought conditions in our Southern Plains area. Bryce Anderson, meteorologist for DTN, put out his alert this morning stating that so far most of these storms that I've been reporting on here on Ag News Daily have bypassed this portion of the country. The Western and Southwestern Plains in February saw participation that was no more, or precipitation that was more, no more than half of the normal amount. And March so far hasn't been any better with only seeing a quarter of normal rainfall in those areas. You're talking a sliver of northern Texas, the southeastern quarter of Oklahoma, the northeastern corner of Kansas, and the extreme south edge of the Texas Bend. Very clearly here in extreme drought conditions. The lack of moisture keeps showing up on winter wheat ratings. Winter wheat is coming out of dormancy in those areas. As of March 19th, that wheat crop in Kansas was rated 50% poor to very poor. Oklahoma, 43%. Texas, 44%. The Texas rating also indicates that uh, they may get a little benefit from the winter precipitation that came in their area, but Oklahoma and Kansas are still struggling as substantial. The uh, totals for March so far are less than one inch of rain. If you talk uh, Dodge City, Kansas, Delaney, they are at 1% of normal precipitation with less than a tenth of an inch. So it'll be an area that I'm sure we will report on quite a bit. But we'll look here towards the uh, continue to watch what the USDA does for their assessments in that area. But right now, bottom line, the drought remains well in place and there is not going to be a significant amount of benefit, even if regular precipitation falls for a quick recovery. So we'll continue to monitor that. Tina, this is a story that I have missed. I don't know if you've seen it. It's about a week, week and a half old here. But there were quite a few winter storms battering California's northern portion of the state. And poor conditions have left cattle starving and snowed in with ranchers unable to get to them. So there was Operation Haydrop that was quickly put in place. Humboldt County, which is a coastal area in northern California, worked with local officials to take helicopter deliveries of hay to some of these northern coastal ranch locations, Tanner. And uh, the measures were pretty interesting here to watch literally helicopters and folks driving via helicopter to drop off hay to about 30 different ranches. I believe that crews lasted about seven and a half hours to get about three and a half tons of hay dropped to stranded cattle, Tanner. But just thought that was kind of a cool story for this Friday episode. Yeah, and unfortunately, as we continue to monitor the flooding conditions out there, uh, a lot of producers are struggling with breached levees uh, along mm -hmm. their river system, too. So we'll continue to watch that. Another little fun story for Friday. Willie Nelson has been honored with a educational endowment fund. So just a couple of weeks after winning another Grammy, Willie Nelson is getting a University of Endowment in Texas fund. He is 89 year old. Obviously, in the 1980s, he helped launch the Farm Aid Benefit Concerts and namesake the new Willie Nelson Endowment for Uplifting Rural Communities Fund at the University of Texas LBJ School of Public Affairs will be the new endowment fund. They will reflect his lyrics from Always On My Mind which raised nearly $70 million for family farm owners during farm aid. 
The school also plans to honor the Texas native in May with a gala. Willie Nelson is a national treasure who gained fame through his musical talent, but he also loves to help his fellow Americans. So he will receive the LBJ Foundation's Liberty and Justice for All Award at this May gala, joining a list of recipients that include former U.S. presidents, members of Congress, and late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So a neat little uh, award there for Willie, and uh, we'll see how this fund grows and what it will be used for. Well, Tanner, I think I have just one final piece of news here, and that's an update on the Tyson food plant closures happening on the eastern side of the country, both in Virginia and Georgia. I reported, I believe earlier this week, if not late last week, that Tyson Foods has two poultry facilities that will be shutting down. And that's raised some antitrust concerns among U.S. farmers. Tyson Foods gave their chicken suppliers just two months notice of the plans to shut down the Virginia processing facility in May, raising concerns among farmers and legal experts about the company's compliance with antitrust regulations, which actually require 90 days notice before ending a contract. And as stated there, some of these farmers and folks working with the facility were only given a two months notice, Tanner. The plant's closure of the plant has left dozens of Virginia chicken growers scrambling to find a new buyer in their region with very few options. They said they could also expose Tyson to fines under the century-old Packers and Stockyards Act, the U.S. antitrust law requiring the minimum advance warning, as I mentioned there, and a few other legal issues that they have not followed well through on. So it sounds like Maybe a lawsuit might be coming for some of those farmers if repercussions or if, um, you know, some compromises here from Tyson are not made for some of those poultry producers in the area. Yeah, interesting. The last two quick headlines that I've got are just some updates around topics we talk about quite a bit. It looks like North Dakota is adding their state to the list of those against and providing some lotus intervention. So the uh, U.S. District Court for North Dakota is looking to be potentially much more lenient in granting ag groups the motion to intervene. Uh, They will add themselves to the list that includes Texas and Idaho, and senators are looking at reintroducing the Next Generation of Fuels Act. So we've got a group of senators combining the Midwest here, both from Iowa and Minnesota and Illinois putting together a package again to remind our listeners this would be requiring manufacturers to design vehicles with e20 blend capabilities as well as their flex fuel vehicles for e30 fuel retailers will offer respective higher octane options and this will be funding to convert some blender pumps over as well so a little quick hit on two headlines there we'll continue to watch to see if this reintroduced renewable fuels for next generation fuels act gains any traction and moves forward but it was met with a substantial amount of applause as they talked a lot about reducing and lowering greenhouse gas emissions by 40 percent as a result of this proposal so we'll watch that delaney but i am out of headlines for the day i am as well other than looking at where markets are heading here for the opening session and this week we've had pretty strong export sales for the week ending march 16th they totaled 121.9 million metric, or excuse me, million bushels of old crop and 3.7 million bushels of new crop. 
large contributor there to those export sales were purchases made by China. However, nonetheless, still a large sale for this time of year, but marketing year corn export sales to date are still down about 34% from this time last year. So numbers are looking strong for this year when you think about it on a year yearly basis, but a year over year basis, not doing quite so hot. But nonetheless, here, as we hop into looking at where markets will open this morning, Maine old crop corn up five and a half cents at 637. New crop corn will open two and a quarter cent higher at 554 and a half. May soybeans down eight and three quarter cents today at 1410 and three quarters. November new crop beans will open two and three quarter cents lower at 1255 and a quarter, continuing their ugly slide there. May Winter wheat will open 18 and a quarter cent higher at 838. And livestock markets here for this final trading session of the week will open at a buck 62.15 in April live cattle, $1.95 even in the April feeder cattle markets. And in the April lean hog pits, they'll open at 75.75. Tanner, without further ado, let's kick it over to a conversation Jennifer grabbed at last week's PAS conference. What do you search when you're in the market to buy farm equipment? For 45 years, Fastline Marketing Group has served the farming community with quality farm equipment listings for tractors, combines, hay and forage equipment, lawn and garden equipment, and more. Check out Fastline.com for availability on all your favorite makes and models of equipment. And if you're an equipment dealer, put Fastline's industry-leading social media following and marketing expertise to work for you. Fastline Marketing Group is the farmer resource and marketing partner of choice in the agriculture industry. came to a close for many universities across the U.S. And sitting with me is Kaylee Kleitch right now, who recently got to travel to Australia for a study abroad trip with Iowa State. Kaylee, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and also just touch on your trip to Australia? Yeah. Hi, Jennifer, and hello, everybody. Uh, like she said, my name is Kaylee Kleitch. I am currently a senior at Iowa State University where I major in agricultural and rural policy studies and international ag. And uh, like was mentioned, I got the great opportunity to go to Australia. Uh, We left on the 9th of March and then we got back to the States on the 19th, so 10 days. Um, And it was absolutely amazing. So if you're okay with it, I'll just jump right in. Yeah, please tell me all about it. Perfect. So we first got to Des Moines the morning of the 9th, and then we had a two-hour flight to Dallas where we got to have a lot of fun in the airport. (laughs) It was an absolute blast for a five-hour layover. And then we had about a 16-hour flight to Sydney. Oh. Yeah, (laughs) it was kind of rough. But once we got through customs and everything in Sydney, which really wasn't bad, we stepped onto Australian soil for the first time. Uh, We were able to meet with um, a member of the Aboriginal culture. Uh, Australia, one thing that really impressed me about it, they have a deep understanding and gratitude and respect for their native peoples, the Aboriginals. And so that was the first thing that we did. We listened to a man who was actually taken from his mother to be basically turned European as a child. He got sent to a mission, um, as were many 
of the stolen generation, as we found out. And he told us about his culture um, and basically did a land recognition, which is pretty typical, I found out, uh, for events in Australia. But after that, after he sent us on our way, we were able to drive around and uh, we saw some gorgeous sights, made it to our hotel, um, and we got to know each other a little bit. I only went in knowing a couple people, one better than others, but really it was a whole bunch of strangers. And honestly, I think that's something beautiful about study abroads. Not only do you get to see a entirely new country, but you get to see an entirely new set of people who live in the same town as you, go to the same school as you, but otherwise you would have never met. So we go about our day, and then that next day is a free day in Sydney. So we got to split into some different groups um, and just roam <laughs> as long as we checked in at the end of the day and they made sure we were still alive. Um, but my group, we got to check out the St. Mary's Cathedral, uh, we saw a bunch of crazy birds. I'm a bird gal, and there are so many interesting <laughs> birds in Australia. Um, but beyond that, we went to the botanical gardens. We were able to eat at this cute little cafe with some fancy food. Normally, I'm not a fancy food eater. I'm more of a ramen girl myself. But um, you know what? We were on study abroad, so I treated myself. We caught, well, we tried to catch a ferry. We missed our original ferry, but we'd already paid the fees. So we just hopped on a different ferry and rode the whole round trip. So we got to see the Sydney Harbor. Um, and then, yeah, the next day we visited a fish market and then we were on our way. We got to do some more sightseeing and we started visiting farms. We saw sheep production, cotton, uh, which, Sorry, backtracking to the sheep. They do both lamb and mutton, and then they do wool production. So very diverse. And that's actually one of the things that caught me most off guard about Australia. I mean, in Iowa, people have sheep for 4-H or FFA or shows. We don't see acres and acres of sheep just grazing and living their lives. <laughs> that's more of a cattle thing here. Um, yeah, some girls and I were talking about it. Those things would be eaten by coyotes in about two minutes if we let them out here. But that's a very big industry in Australia, which was very interesting to see. Um, but we saw uh, <laughs> yeah, sheep and cattle and then a whole lot of crops. So cotton, maize, they call it maize there, not corn, um, some legumes, uh, I stood in a rice paddy, which was amazing. Um, that's not something I was expecting to do on my trip there. And uh, potatoes, just a plethora of crops. It's really interesting. They have a very dry climate, but with how accepted and integrated irrigation is in that system, they can really grow just about anything. So it's really neat. And Kaylee, I remember you telling me some about these potatoes some more. They were purple potatoes. Could you talk about that and what the industry was like? Yeah, absolutely. So we visited this farmer and all we knew is that he had purple potatoes. We really didn't know anything past that when looking at the itinerary. And then we pulled into this farm. It really didn't look like much. There was actually a sign out front for like a dairy I mean, it looked like any typical farm. So we weren't even sure we were in the right place, if we were being honest, at least the students, uh, the advisors knew what they were doing. 
And we got out and we walked into the shed. It looks like just any old shed. And we're like, okay, so the potato tour must have got canceled because this doesn't look like a potato factory. Like, it doesn't look like a chip factory. And then this fellow comes and starts talking to us. And he's, he's very nice. I'll get into him a bit more later. But uh, he takes us to the other half of the shed where this, there's this huge white wall and there's this little door on the white wall and you open it up and you're in a whole new world. It's a spotless, like perfectly clean factory where they take the harvested potatoes, they clean them, the, the machine cleans them, they slice them and they're all dropped into this kettle and that's where their kettle cooked. And then they are all packaged within those couple of rooms. And then that tour was over and we went out another door and we were back in the shed. It's like, it was insane. Um, but yes, this man, very, very sweet, honest, extremely honest. I don't think I've seen anybody on a tour that was so humble. And I mean, he blatantly admitted his mistakes in his business and he admitted, I mean, he told us the real story. Um, but he was able to breed his own potato it is a bright purple. Um, it's a gorgeous color. And um, he has actually marketed that into a niche market. And so now he is able to kind of definitely not compete with some of those big brands, but um, he's kind of stride by stride with them. Uh, they're gaining um, more and more customers and they're producing a lot of chips and they're actually working on breeding a pink potato now. And we got to see some of his designs for what he hopes the future holds. And there's these crazy like pink and white and purple fries. I mean, can you imagine how like it would, getting kids to eat potatoes would be so much easier if they were all these fun colors. Um, but that was just such an interesting trip and honestly, I, I don't know what my favorite part was, but I heard a lot of people saying that um, the potato farm was their favorite part of the tour. Well, that all sounds very interesting and a lot of diverse agriculture compared to what we get to see here and similar in some ways. But also on top of Australia, you've mentioned that you've traveled to Uruguay and Costa Rica and me before. So how do the three countries compare in agriculture practices? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, it's really hard to compare because they're each so different, but each was very, very interesting. Costa Rica had more of your tropical fruits, a lot, a lot of fruit in Costa Rica. Uh, we visited pineapple farms and I mean, it was a great experience, but very, very different from everything else I've seen. Uh, Uruguay was a bit more like the US in that they had a lot of meat production, um, not so much the fruits and vegetables, which I can't say I was expecting because when I think South America, I think tropical things. And Jennifer was actually on the Uruguay trip with me and I, I would think you thought oh, the same thing. Yeah, I definitely agree. I was expecting a lot more tropics and I don't think we saw anything of that sort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At least not in the area that we were in. Right. And then Australia, it was 
it was very different, but the most similar to the states that I've seen. Um, like I mentioned earlier, they have a very dry climate. Unfortunately, they've been going through some pretty bad droughts recently. But through irrigation and through some of their different cropping systems, it reminded me a lot of um, probably the south section of America and then um, just probably some of the Midwest. I mean, their maize was actually yielding higher than our corn does with the irrigation and all the work that they put into it. So once they really nailed down their system, the farmers there were doing amazing things. Do you know what type of irrigation system they used there? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ones, but I would say the most common that we saw was actually a canal irrigation. And then depending on the farm, uh, that kind of determined which type of system they used to get it out of the canal. The maize farm that we visited used a siphon irrigation system. So imagine you're... Well, I compared it to cleaning out my fish tank where you put the tube in there and then you bring it out and that suction pulls out the crud at the bottom. Well, in this situation, I there's this giant like 10-foot tube and you take it and you kind of hold it and pump it into the canal with your hands. And then when you're ready, when you think you have enough motion, you put your hand over one end and then throw it into the irrigation system, which in here is just mountains and divots. And then the water starts flowing through from the canal. Interesting. Very, very. So it sounds like you've learned all about unique forms of agriculture that we literally will never be able to see here in the United States because of our climate or just we have a different types of irrigation systems that work better for where we are at um, geographically. But overall, from this learning experience, how will you be able to apply it in your education moving forward, your potential career path, and just life in general? Another great question. Um, I think right here and now, I'm, like I said, majoring in international agriculture. So obviously those are satisfying some uh, academic requirements. But beyond that, for me, just being able to see a different place, a different culture, different people, and getting to have those one-on-one conversations, I mean, that is absolutely irreplaceable. Um, Being able to learn firsthand what other people are going through it's, it's something that's so extremely eye-opening. And I think in Midwest agriculture, sometimes we get kind of, um, we get blinders on and we like to see what, we see what we know. And um, that's not all that there is. And especially for ag policy, which I hope to go into someday, I think it's very important to know what the people who are growing America's food, what they're going through and what that system looks like. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Kaylee. I could literally sit here and ask you questions all day about this, but I will let you go for now. All right. Thanks for having me. Delaney, what a great way to wrap up the week. Listeners, thanks for hanging out with us. Don't forget, we'll be back next week to do more of the same, get you the latest news headlines around the agricultural community and bring you some great conversations. Delaney, what do you say? Should we let them go? Let's let them go.